Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles now, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1, is our sermon text this morning. Uh, We have been going through a short sermon series here called What is Christianity? And um, since we're in this new sanctuary, we kind of see this as kind of a new beginning for our church, and so we thought it would be a good idea to kind of go back to the beginning and review what Christianity, uh, this faith that we profess, what, what is it all about? And so we're taking just four Sundays to look at kind of the major periods of redemptive history to get an idea, a reminder of what Christianity is about. We began a few weeks ago with creation, a logical, reasonable place to start. And you might recall that we learned that God created all things and that by the creation we know that God exists and We learn that God pronounced His creation very good. Everything that He made, physical creation, He pronounced good. Physical matter, the universe, is a good thing. And we also learn that men, women, and children are the crowning achievement of God's creation by virtue of our being made in God's image. So things begin very well. Things begin in a very positive way with God's wonderful, glorious creation. But We went to the next step the week after that and learned that things went dreadfully and terribly wrong. There's this thing called the fall, and we look at Genesis chapter 3 as an explanation of what's gone wrong. We looked at the reality of the fall, that Adam and Eve's sin against God was something that really, truly happened in history. It's not a myth, but a historical event. And we considered the root of that fall. It was Adam's and Eve's sin, their It's more specifically their unwillingness to trust God's Word. They doubted God's Word. They lived as if God hadn't spoken to them, and that led them into sin. Uh, And then we also considered the result of the fall, which was alienation from God, from one another, and from the created order. And since then, all of us have been born into the world with this sin problem under our skin. It's in our DNA now. Uh, as a result of the sin of our uh, first father, Adam. Now, the good news is that that's not the end of the story. And that God, in His mercy and grace, has put forth this plan of redemption. He could have ended it all at the fall in His righteousness and justice. He could have Uh, extinguished creation. He could have brought judgment on the entire project and stopped it all, but he didn't, and he put forth this gracious plan of redemption. And so here we are in the third part of this sermon series, redemption. Now, I'm going to adjust that term redemption just a little bit. I was trying to think of a word that might get to the very nature of the gospel in a clearer way. I mean, redemption is a term maybe not all of us are really familiar with. We did talk about this a few Sundays ago. Sometimes we call this salvation, and for some of us, maybe even that word doesn't really help. What do we mean by salvation? Here's a word that I think describes this part of redemptive history better than anything. The word is rescue. Rescue. And it's pictured very well here. I don't know if you can see that very well, but this is a picture of a a Haitian child. 
after an earthquake. He was buried in the rubble, and rescue workers uh, worked diligently to save this young boy. And you can see that he is delighted (laughs) to be rescued. And this is what is at the essence of the Christian story, that God entered into a rescue plan. If you think about what, what are the like, basic elements of a rescue effort, generally you have somebody who is in a horrible predicament. You have a helpless victim. And then you have dangerous circumstances that surround the situation. And then you have somebody or a group of people who are willing to go in to risk their safety, to risk their lives in some cases, to rescue a victim. And that's what the Christian story is all about, God's rescue effort. And when you think about the Bible, there are actually a number of rescue stories, aren't there? When when you think of... uh, Noah, isn't that basically a rescue story? Noah rescued he and his family from the flood. You think about Joseph, God uses Joseph to save his family and a number of people from a famine. That's a rescue story. The story of the Exodus, right? Israel is enslaved to Egypt and God comes and he rescues his people from Egypt. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel... They're in the fiery furnace. God rescues them from the fiery furnace. You have Daniel in the lion's den, and God rescues Daniel from that place. You've got Paul and Silas in prison in the book of Acts, and God rescues them from jail. Over and over again, that's what we see in the Bible, God graciously rescuing people who are in bad situations. And that's what the Christian story is about. I think for us, as we think about this, we have to come to grips with what the Bible is teaching us, and it's this. Friends, you and I are not the heroes of the rescue story. God is the hero. You and I are the ones who need to be rescued. Do do, do you understand that? Have you come to that place where you've realized that you're not the rescuer primarily? You are the one that needs to be rescued. It seems like it's our default setting as a human race to think that through our technology and through our medical advancements and through our science and through our politics that we are the ones who are going to rescue humanity from its predicament. But what the Bible says is, no, we're the ones who need to be rescued. The Bible is not a story of men and women and children seeking to find and know God. The Bible is the story of a God who is on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. And that's the heart of this doctrine of redemption and what we're going to read about here in Colossians chapter 1. So if you have that, please stand. We're going to read Colossians 1. I'm going to start in verse 13. And then we'll read verses 19 through 23 as well. We'll start with verse 13 and then skip ahead to verse 19 through 23. Colossians 1. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God in heaven, please open our eyes to behold truth in the power of your Spirit now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's consider this uh, rescue mission from three perspectives. First of all, let's look at the nature of this rescue effort that God has been on. What does it look like? Uh, what actually happened? Let me refer you, first of all, to verse 13 that I just read. I wanted to start there because in the ESV it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. If you have an NIV, actually the translation of that word is rescue, isn't it? He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13. In verses 15 through 18, Paul goes on to give us some very specific information uh, about who Jesus is, and then we learn more about that as we pick up in verse 19. So the first question I want to ask under this heading is who it is who rescued us? What is this person like? Who rescued us? Well, let's look to verse 19. Again, verses 15 through 18, talking about Jesus, so that's who is in mind here in verse 19. And it says, in Him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we've got to stop for a second and consider that statement. That's just an astounding thing that the Bible is saying here about Jesus, that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying that Jesus is like God. He's not saying that Jesus has some kind of special connection to God. He's not saying that Jesus is just some kind of special messenger from God. What he's saying is that everything that is in God is in Jesus. And that everything that you need to know about God is found in Jesus. He's saying that there is nothing left in God to give and to offer and to provide for you and me than what He has already given to us in Jesus. What He's saying is that if you want to know God and have relationship with God and know what God's like, you have got to know Jesus because there is nobody else for whom this statement has been made. You look at other major religions like Islam. The Quran never says that in Muhammad all the fullness of God dwells. The Jewish religion doesn't say that in Moses all the fullness of God dwells. But what we as Christians are saying is that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a person about whom nothing like this has ever been said. Nothing like this has been said about anybody else except for this person, Jesus Christ. And this is such an encouragement because it tells us that we can have hope that we really can be rescued from our predicament, from the mess that we've made of this existence. Uh, by way of example, there's a, a documentary called Waiting for Superman. It came out a few years ago. It's actually about the public school system. And uh, there's a very interesting 
commentary at the beginning of this documentary. There's a, a, a guy talking, uh, an African-American man who grew up in the ghetto, and he's reflecting on his time growing up, and he says, uh, he says, I always thought that Superman was going to come and rescue me. And, and I always had this hope that he was coming. And he said, and I told my mom that once, and my mom said, son, Superman doesn't exist. And he said in response to that, he just broke down in tears and just wept. And he said, the reason I was crying is because he came to realize that no one was coming with power to save us. No one with power was coming to save us. What the Christian message is telling us is that one has come with more than enough power to save you and to save us. His name is Jesus, and the reason why he has the power is because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. God himself has come on this rescue mission in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's who has rescued us as Christians. But let's look at what he did as we're thinking about the nature of this rescue. What did he do? Well, verse 21, it says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Remember I said that was the result of the fall. Remember, we were alienated from God, from one another, and from all creation. Paul says the same thing here. At one time, you were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were estranged from God. But, verse 22, God has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. God has done something. In this rescue mission, He has reconciled us to Himself. And the way He has done it is through the body of flesh by His death that God came in the person of Jesus Christ and He went to a cross and He died there. He gave up His life. He shed His blood. And the result of that is reconciliation between us and God. You know how sweet reconciliation is, don't you? I mean, do you know what it's like when you're in a relationship with somebody and things aren't right? There's coldness there. There's a rift there. You don't want to look each other in the eye. You, you, you go to the other side of the room when this person comes because there's something between you and that person. And then the day comes when you're reconciled. Isn't that a sweet, wonderful, rewarding experience? What do you do? You look each other in the eye again. Your frowns are turned to smiles. And you wrap your arms around each other because you're now reconciled. And what was between you is not between you any longer. And what the passage is telling us is that is what Jesus has done for us, that, that, that hostility, that alienation that was between us and God is now removed, and it's gone. And God is smiling at us, not frowning at us. He's not walking away from us. He's coming toward us. And the reason He can do this is because He offered up His body by His death, His body of flesh by His death. He laid down his life, and he paid the penalty for our sins, as we hear every single Sunday here when we do the confession and assurance. This is how God rescued us. This is what he did. And we hear this a lot, and maybe it's, it's hard to really hear this afresh, but 
I read a, an account of a, a missionary to the Aztec Indians who gave an account of how the Aztecs responded when the gospel was preached to them, and, and he said this. He said, he said, these Aztecs were people who were accustomed to men sacrificing themselves to the gods. That was their religion. And we told them the gospel. They were absolutely astounded to learn that there was a God who sacrificed himself for men. This was entirely different. Just absolutely astonished them. And they came to faith in the gospel because of what Jesus has done in his body of death on the cross. One last thing. What's the result? What's the result? Look at verse 22 again. He's now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As a result of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, for those who believe upon him have shifted their confidence in themselves to this Jesus, what this text is telling us is that you now, Christian, stand before God holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you, do you get what that is saying? Do you understand how astounding this is for the Christian? We're not just saying that, that God is... is um, you know, has, has washed your sins away, as wonderful as that is. That's not all that's being said here. There's something more. What's being said is that you stand before God, Christian, holy. Do you ever think of yourself as a holy person? How often do you think of yourself as someone who is blameless? I mean, let's just do a little exercise here. Think Think of the sin in your life that is the most shameful thing, the thing that just haunts you. Maybe it's a sin you committed last week. Maybe it's a sin you committed 20 years ago. Maybe it's a sin that everybody knows about. Maybe it's a sin that nobody knows about. But it's a sin that has brought you deep shame, and you've been carrying this sin for a long time. If you are a Christian, what this passage is saying is that God is not going to blame you for that sin. You get that? He's not holding it against you. He's not going to bring it up. He doesn't consider you worthy of blame because of that thing that you did or that thing that you didn't do or that thing that you said or the thing that you didn't say. You're blameless, Christian. That's what the work of God on the cross has done for you. Now, you might be saying... Well, you know, yeah, I know, I know that. I hear that all the time, but what I really need rescue from, Bob, is my horrible job situation, my horrible marriage, this horrible sickness. That's what I need to be rescued from. That's what I want to be rescued from. Maybe that's what you're saying. I just want to back up and, and say, friends, that I think what we miss very often is what is true from an eternal perspective. And as hard and difficult as those things might be in your life, I just want to remind you today that your biggest problem, born into this world, under the sin of Adam, is that you are alienated from God and hostile in your heart and mind toward Him. That's our natural state, all of us, born into this world. And God, through Jesus Christ, has rescued you from that.
you are rescued and you are blameless. Your biggest problem has been dealt with in the gospel. That's, that's what is central to the message that the Bible tells us and what we mean by redemption. So let's go to the next thing. The scope. Let's think of the scope of the rescue. We just talked about the nature of the rescue. How about the scope of the rescue? How far does this rescue extend? Look at verse 20. Uh, This is a verse that, that might throw you for a loop a little bit. It says, through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all souls. Is that what it says? All, all people. That's not what it says, does it? Is it? It says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What this is saying is that the rescue that God has put forth in Jesus Christ is not just a rescue of souls and spirits, it's a rescue of the entire created order. This is a rescue effort that extends a whole lot further than I think any of us contemplate or maybe any of us even really know. You might remember what I said during the Sermon on the Fall is that the fall, the effects of the fall extend to the entire created order. That's why we have tsunamis and tornadoes. That's why animals are afraid of us. That's why our bodies die. It's not just our souls affected. It's all of the physical universe is implicated in the effects and consequences of Adam's sin. Uh, It's like a a story that George Whitfield, preacher from a couple centuries ago, told. He He said, you know, do you know why dogs bark at you? Do you know why dogs bark at human beings as as they walk by? It's because they know. They know that you and I have a quarrel with our maker. That's what Whitfield says. That's why dogs bark at you. Because you are part of the problem in rebelling against God, and because of our sin and Adam's, the whole created order, including the dogs and cats, have been implicated in the consequences of the fall. And even the animals know it. But as we sing every year for Christmas in Joy to the World, this rescue effort extends as far as the curse is found. Does that sound familiar to you? As far as the curse is found. That means the scope of God's rescue plan in Jesus doesn't end with souls. Look what it says here in Acts chapter 3, heaven must receive the Messiah until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Everything. Stars, the trees, the universe, the moon, everything. Romans chapter 8, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one, Adam, who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself actually will be liberated from its bondage to decay. The created order one day will be totally and completely freed when Jesus returns again. Have you ever thought about Jesus' miracles, you know, in the Gospels, where Jesus, um, he... uh, he, he heals the blind, he calms the waves of the sea, he turns water into wine, he, 
He raises the dead, right? He does all those things. Why does he do all that? Now, I know the answer is, well, to show that he's divine and to show that he's powerful. That's, that's true, but that's not the whole answer. The whole answer is that because Jesus' intent is to restore, subdue, redeem, reclaim all of creation, water, wine, and waves included. I just don't know of any other religion, any other worldview that holds out a hope for the whole created order the way the Christian faith does. We'll talk about that more. Our last sermon in this series is going to be glory, and so we'll think about the coming new earth and get into a little more detail uh, about this. But this is the nature of this rescue effort or the scope of this rescue effort. It's cosmic in scope. It's global in scope. It's universal in scope. Now, by universal, don't misunderstand me there. I'm not saying that every single person without exception is saved. By saying that God's rescue effort is universal, I'm not saying I'm a universalist. (laughs) You look to John chapter 3, for instance, Jesus says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. So we see that those not in Christ, those who haven't believed and turned their faith to Jesus, are not saved. They're not redeemed. They will face judgment. So that's not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is that the scope of God's redemptive work includes vineyards and music and bodies and trees and animals. I get asked by children a lot, will there be animals in heaven? The answer is yes, there will be. On the new earth, there will be animals. We're going to enjoy a physical existence on a new earth. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk again more about that next week. I love to talk about that. That's an exciting part of the gospel. There's a book called Creation Regained that I would highly recommend to you. Creation Regained, and it's by a guy named Al Walters. Here's a quote from him from that book. It says, theologians have sometimes spoken of salvation as recreation, not to imply that God scraps his earlier creation and in Jesus Christ makes a new one, but rather to suggest that he hangs on to his fallen original creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his son to save his original project. Notice what it says at the end of verse 20. He's making peace by the blood of his cross Jesus sacrificed to restore all things. That that means, friends, this. That means that we should be worldly people. (laughs) By worldly, I don't mean sinful people. I don't mean people set against God and His ways. But I mean that we should be, as Christians, people who are engaged in the world, involved in the world, um, out on the welcome booth, there's a um, copy of the Muncie magazine, and in that magazine, there's a story on 20 people under 40 who are kind of influential people in our community, and uh, Josh Hollowell, our church planning apprentice, is included in there. There's a number of other individuals there, but one thing I notice as I go through and look at those individuals, a lot of them are Christians, and that's wonderful. Christians taking the lead in our community to make this city a better place. That's the way it ought to be. 
Jesus has come to rescue the whole creation, and so therefore you and I, until Jesus comes again, need to be involved in the same kind of project in all the various places that God has put us. We start businesses, and we don't look at a business as just something that's merely secular. We look at a business as an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to employ people, an opportunity to make a community better. We don't look at the arts, at literature and music and painting. We don't say, oh, that's all just worldly stuff. No, we say these are ways for us to capture the reality of human experience. We see that art is intended to capture beauty, and when we see beauty, we recognize that. We need more Christian artists, friends. We need Christians making movies, making music, and writing novels. We need that. There's not anything sub-spiritual about that. When it comes to sexuality, we don't say as Christians, oh, no, no, that's taboo. Let's never talk about that. That's embarrassing. That's not the way a Christian should act. Sexuality is part of the way God made us. It's part of the created order. What we do is we talk about it. We open up. We converse with one another so that together, under the influence of the Scriptures, we can learn how to submit our sexuality to the authority of the Scriptures. Food. Food is not a distraction. Food is not a bother. Food is not something we're doing just so we can keep our bodies going until we get to heaven. Food is a gift. Food is to be relished. Food is to be enjoyed as part of God's good created order. And food itself will be redeemed for the coming age. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb that we're going to be celebrating, right? When Jesus comes again, a feast. So let's be people who are involved in the world as Jesus has come to rescue the whole created order. One last thing. The evidence. Let's consider the evidence of the rescue. What is the evidence that you and I have actually been rescued? If you look back to verse 23, we get to this verse that maybe it's this verse that kind of makes your heart sink. You know, it's like, oh man, there's a condition here. All these wonderful things, but if, it says at the start of verse 23, it's always a big if. Oh, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. What Paul is saying here is that the evidence that you have been rescued, that you're a Christian, that you know Jesus as your Savior, the ultimate evidence is if you continue and persevere to the end. I mean, maybe you've asked this question, how do I know who's really a Christian and who's not? How do I know the true Christians from the false Christians? I mean, it's true, there's some people who really act like Christians, and they're really not. There's people who you think, they don't really seem like Christians, and they really are. I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be surprised. There's a lot of people there I didn't think were going to be there. There's a lot of people not there who I thought were going to be there. But I'll be mostly surprised that I'm there. So how do, how do we discern this? How do we know who's a Christian and, and who's not? The, the answer is, for the final determination of that, is in the end, when Jesus comes again, we'll see who persevered, who continued, and who didn't. That, that's going to be the proof in the pudding. Now let me make some clarifications here. This is not saying that continuing in the faith will save you, because look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you. 
that the reconciliation has already taken place. It's something that's happened outside of you on the cross. It's something that Jesus already finished. Continuing in the faith doesn't merit your salvation, doesn't make you saved. If you're a Christian, you're saved now. You're reconciled now. So that's not what this is saying. Continue in your faith, and then God will be pleased with your perseverance and save you for it. That's not what it's saying. But it's also not saying to continue to always have strong faith as if there's no room for doubt or no room for a crisis of faith or no room for questions or that kind of thing. That, that's, that's not what it's saying either. What it's saying is simply what Jesus says here. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not to merit our salvation, but as evidence that we've been saved, that we've been rescued. You know, it's just so easy to talk big, isn't it? It's so easy to make big commitments, and it's not quite so easy to follow through on this. There's a couple that I knew in high school. There were these, this, these two people, and you know, I have never seen two people more excited about each other than, than these two. They were just grinning wildly when they were in each other's presence. They were always holding hands. They were always laughing and giggling. They talked baby talk to each other all the time. They were inseparable. They just seemed like a match made in heaven. And so you can imagine my surprise when I learned a couple years ago they got divorced. Friends, it doesn't really matter how excited you are when you become a Christian or how thrilled in your heart you might be right now about being a Christian. That's a good thing. But the important thing is that you continue to the end, that you persevere. That's the evidence of your salvation. Now, look what Paul says here. He says, continue in the faith. So I, I think that's very important to point out. If you continue in the faith, not if you continue in faith, if you continue in the faith. And, and that's important because if you look at Jude verse 3, says this, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What that passage and what Paul, I think, is referring to here, when they say the faith, what they're talking about is, is the content of the gospel, the apostolic teaching of God's mercy, God sending His Son to die and be resurrected for those who place faith in Him, that if you continue in that faith, the basic, most essential body of gospel doctrine that's been handed down, continuing in faith, that if you hold to that until the end, that's what's evidence of your rescue. So it's not that I never have questions. I mean, obviously, much of us, I'm sure you're, you're saying, you know, there are times when you just don't understand at all what the Bible is saying. There are times when you don't feel like obeying God. There are times when you don't feel like reading your Bible or praying. There are times you wonder if you're a Christian or not. The passage is not saying that if that's you, then you're not continuing. There's lots of room for doubt and questions and up and down in the Christian life. But if at the end of the day you're saying, you know, I don't understand this, and I'm overwhelmed with burdens of many kinds, but my hope is in Jesus. In the end, that's the hope of the gospel that you heard, and I'm clinging to that. Th that's the continuation that I think Paul is talking about 
here. And it seems like a good way for us to conclude this sermon by reciting this faith, the content of this faith uh, that has been handed down over the centuries. And the creed that is the most often recited creed throughout the church and throughout history is called the Nicene Creed. So here's how we're going to do. We're just going to read this as an expression of the faith and as our conviction about what God has done to rescue sinners like you and me. So the Nicene Creed should be up on our screen. Let's, um, let's read this together once it gets up on the screen, as I'm sure it will be in just a moment. And I hope it does, because we don't have hymnals under your chairs, and it's not there yet. And it's 5 to 12. Oh, it vanished. Okay? Tell you what, I'll read the creed to you. Okay, if, if, you, if you know the creed uh, by heart, you can uh, recite it along with me. Here, here is the faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven to rescue us and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you have not left us to rescue ourselves, but that you have rescued us. And we acknowledge that you and you alone, Lord Jesus, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, are totally sufficient to rescue sinners like us. We thank you and praise you. In his name we pray. Amen.